Look around. So somebody who you expect to see or who's not here today. Look around. It's important for us to remember that this is not the church, but we are the church. And when a brother or sister is not among us, just look out for them. Give them a call this week. Say, hey, I missed you on Sunday. Uh, it's important for us just to remember one another because it's so easy for us to, to go on and week in and week out and we don't see someone. We think maybe they're fine. We assume, oh, they just forgot or they slept in. But give them a call. I, I, know, I know you would appreciate it, right, when someone reached out to you. So look around and see someone who's not here and, and reach out to them this week and, and love on them through a phone call or an email. Well, let's pray together as we open God's Word this morning. Lord, we confess the words of this song we sung this morning. That better is one day in your courts than a thousand days anywhere else on this earth or anywhere else we could imagine, oh God. But God, I, I know if all of us are honest with ourselves, there are times, and maybe even today is one of those, where we just don't feel that. Lord, there are times that all of us just, it's just hard, God. It's hard to, to focus on you. Our love for you is not there. We, we just we confess that, God. We confess how, how, how we don't see you through that light, oh Lord. And oh God, we cry out to you even now. Oh God, as we've thought and studied and, and prayed about and learn about your Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. God, I lean on Him right now. I pray, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would fill me, O oh Lord, and speak through me, O oh God. Give me the words to say, enliven our hearts, awaken us, O oh God. Move among us, we pray, O oh God. Lord, we know there's so many distractions, so many. But God, they fall to the side inside of you. In the sight of you, God, we, we look right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, nearly 280 years ago, the year 1734 was a turning point in America as it was known at that time. There was a pastor in a small town that carried this burden for his people. The town was Northampton, Massachusetts. The pastor was Jonathan Edwards. He had a burden for his people that they needed to have a, a better understanding of what the gospel was. So he endeavored in 1734 to start a preaching series on justification by faith, which is to say that our salvation, that we are declared right before God by faith alone in Christ alone. He said, my people need to understand this. So he started a preaching series. But little did he know that God would use that series to do something he has done only a handful of times ever since. The people in his church were overwhelmed with the reality of God's holiness, God's uh, God's wrath, his hatred towards sin. They were overwhelmed with this. They were overwhelmed with the reality that they were sinners and how they needed to repent of their sin. And in that small church, 
In Northampton, Massachusetts, in 1734, God sparked a revival. But it was a unique thing because it was not only confined to those to that, to that church, but God began to do it in other churches, in other cities, in other towns throughout the, the America, America at that time. And God raised up other preachers, like a guy named George Whitfield and John Wesley. And this revival went from 1734 to 1740. Six years where God was impressing upon His people His holiness and their need for Him as they repented of their sins and cried out to God. And we know those events these days as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. Our sermon series we begin today is called Awakening. And at the heart of this series, the core of it is a prayer that God would revive and renew all of our hearts. Now when I say the word revival, different images come to your mind. It depends where you grew up, depends how old you are. Some of you might think of a big tent. A big tent. How many, how many big tent revivalists are, comes to your mind there? A big tent where a preacher preaches a fiery message. There's a center aisle. There's got to be a center aisle. And people come walking down, seeking to, to be prayed for, to trust in Christ. Some of you think of that when you think of revival. Others of you think of a, a Friday night service, a revival service, where a particular sermon is preached. Some of you think of an emotional response that is, comes with tears and cries and, and groanings before God. And some others of you think of something that God did in the past, like the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, or the Businessman's Revival started in New York City. Think of those kinds of things. Well, the different images we have, some of them may be right and some aspects may be wrong. But we want to focus on beginning today and in the weeks ahead as the elders, as Pastor Ralph and I, as we've prayed about this. We have in mind when we speak of revival, the work that God does when He impresses upon us the realities of His holiness. And when we see His holiness, we then see our sin and our desperate need for God and turn to Him in repentance. For, for this series, when we, when we think of revival, we think of that personal response to God. That personal response. Well, the question is, who needs revival? Well, the answer is simple. You do. I do. We need revival. We need to be renewed. We need to be renewed. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 to take the log out of your own eye before you would even address the speck in your brother's eye. And we need to look at ourselves and say, God, where am I at? Do I love you, God, as you call me to love you? I think of Psalm 139 when David says, Search me and know my heart, O God. That's a scary prayer. God, search my heart and show me. Is there anything wrong in me? Now, I know some of you might be upset at the thought that I would suggest that you need renewal. And at this point, I want to warn against self-righteousness. There is a spiritual pride that tells us I'm cool with God. Yet if you are pursuing the Lord, you know one thing, and you know this for sure, that were it apart from God's Spirit, you would be in utter despair. And as we pursue God, we know, God, I need you to continually renew me as I walk in repentance. I need you, God. So the moment we think, I don't need revival, I don't need renewal, 
you're in danger of self-righteousness, self-pride. See, when we look at God's holiness, it's like a black light when wearing a black shirt and you've got dandruff. You go in a room with a black light, it shows, doesn't it? When you walk out, you think, oh, it's cool, look at me, I got nothing. You go in that black lit room, you see it. And that's how God's holiness is. And when we think we're cool, we need to look at God's holiness and we say, God, I'm not but a part. That's why I need Jesus. And in Christ, I am I'm justified. His righteousness is mine. But God, I know I need you. I need your daily renewing. I need to be awakened every day to have my heart enlivened for you. So, before we start thinking of who this message is not for, prop up a mirror and stare deeply into those eyes as we look at our own hearts and say, God, this is for me. This is, this is not for the brother or sister around me. This is for me, God. I need you, oh Lord. And that's the prayer of Jeremiah as we find in Jeremiah chapter 2. Because God was using Jeremiah like a black light exposing the sins of his people, calling them to repent. And that's what we find in Jeremiah chapter 2. Would you turn your Bibles with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 2. And I want to read again, beginning in verses 5, verse 5, and going to verse, verse 8 this time. This is what God's word says as he uses Jeremiah, his prophet, his messenger. This is what God says. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is the capital city. This is to address the entire nation of Israel. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. And actually, let me pause there. What we see here is God is remembering where his people once were. He says, I remember your devotion to me. The word devotion is hesed. It is loving kindness. It is the covenant loyalty. God says, I remember when you loved me in this covenant relationship. And he likens it to a marriage. You see that in verse, verse uh, 1, verse 2? He remembers the devotion of your love, uh, devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. God likens his relationship with his people as a marriage. And you were devoted to your spouse. God saying, I was your husband. You were my bride. You showed me loving kindness and loyalty. You loved me, God says. And he goes on to say how you followed me in the wilderness. They followed their God. In the land not sown, verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord. God set her apart. You are my bride. I've set you apart from the other nations to have a relationship, this covenant relationship with you. She was the first fruits of his harvest. She was the best of what he had. And all who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them. If you messed with God's bride, he judged those nations. This was the marriage that God had with his people. It was a beautiful picture. It was a true marriage. 
But Israel committed spiritual adultery. He tells us in verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? You hear that cry of God? What wrong did you find in me, your husband, your groom, that you would follow after another? Is what God is saying. What, what did I do wrong that you would pursue a worthless relationship? You hear, you hear the agony of God's heart. And we see in the next few verses, God says, I provided you a land. I provided you a beautiful land to care for. But we see in verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. God the groom says, I gave you this this land, my bride, yet you defiled it. This is Jeremiah's word to God's people. And what we see is God's people truly, they didn't know him anymore. And we see this sobering lesson. Where you were then may not necessarily be where you are now. Israel had a devotion to her God, but that was long past. And there are many of us who say, oh yeah, yeah, I lived for God. I did that. I did my five years, my ten years. I showed devotion to Him. But But God's saying, what you were then does not necessarily mean who you are now. God is not impressed with past devotion in the face of present rebellion. He's not impressed with it. Past devotion is in the past. Where are you now? God calls out their sin. You've committed two evils, he says in verse 13. Two evils my people have committed against me. And we need to take note of this thing. God, search my heart. Is this where I am at? And notice he says, two evils. Not two sins. Two evils. In reality, there is no difference. But what it does, it reminds us that sin is evil. At the very heart of sin, it's rebellion toward God. And as that black light shows on us, we're reminded of how our sin is rebellion. It's evil. But there are two particular sins that God wanted to address among his people here. He says, they, in verse 13, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. You see the two sins? They've forsaken the fountain of living water, the first sin, and the second one, they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns. That hold no water. There are three sources of water in this time in Israel. The best source was a live stream of water. It was it was it was continually being flown. It's, it's continued flowing. It's clean. It's pure. It's the best to drink of. It's living water is what they called it. A live stream. It was the best. A second best was well water, where you would dig deeply and then you find the water down beneath the surface. But the third and least preferred was a cistern. And it was a carved out room underground. And it was plastered inside so it wouldn't leak. And what it would do is it would bring in the rainwaters. But the problem is, 
when the rain would fall, it would catch other kinds of uh, insects and bugs, and water would go into these cisterns, and then it would sit there. It was stagnant water. It didn't move around. It wasn't cleansed. And God is saying, you've forsaken the fountain of living water and turned to a cistern. So let's consider what it means then to, to forsake the fountain of living water. As we say, God, I know the rebellion of my heart. I know my shortcomings. God, have I forsaken you? And I know most of us here would say, no, I haven't. I haven't forsaken God. But let's look what God and how God defines forsaking him. He says they've forsaken the fountain of living water. They have chosen not to drink from the Lord to satisfy their thirsts. And when I think of drinking from the Lord, I think when we drink from God's fountain, it's to say that God has become the object of our affections. It's to say that God is the focus of our attention and He is the goal of our ambition. It's God, you are the central point of my life. I'm drinking from your fountain and I'm finding satisfaction in you. But if God is not that for us, we've forsaken Him. God tells Israel in verse 11, verse 10, He says, For, for cross to the coast of Cyprus, that's in the west, and see, or send to Kedar, which is in the east, and examine with care. So search from west to east. See if this thing has ever been done. Verse 11, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they were no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. My people have traded God for something else. And he says, when they've done that, they've forsaken Him. I love how it says they've forsaken their glory. 1 Samuel 15, 29, Samuel calls God the glory of Israel. And He is our glory because He is He who has given life. He is our pride. He is our joy. He is our hope. And Israel forsook Him. They stopped drinking from the fountain of living water. Just think about it. In our own day, there's, a, there's an obsession with youthfulness. We're wanting to stay and look young. Plastic surgery, Botox, all these things want to keep you looking what you really are not. It's the desire to stay young. And it's not new to our culture. It's not new. From, from times past, there were these myths of a fountain of youth. The fountain of youth. People go exploring, looking. They could find this fountain. They could drink from it. They could bathe in it. They could stay young. But, but God said, it's not even a fountain of youth he's speaking of here. This is a fountain of life. It is life. It is life in this time now. It is enjoying life to the fullest as it's found in God. It is life eternal. People look for a fountain of youth. Imagine finding a fountain of life but not drinking from it. And this is what God's people have done in forsaking Him. Now as we think about this, there's a reality that we are fallen people. We, we mess up every day, every hour, and every moment. We fall short. But there's a difference between a, a, a repentant heart and a rebellious one. You know, every wayward thought we think, every careless word we speak, every prideful action, when we're confronted with that, we're grieved, saying, God, I'm sorry, Lord. I know that displeases you. I, I, I repent, God, 
Create in me a clean heart. Renew me. Turn me from that. That's a repentant heart. A rebellious heart says, God, I know what you want of me, and I will do otherwise. God, I know what you want me to do in this circumstance, and I am choosing to not do it. That is rebellion. That is forsaking the fountain of living water. God, I know that you don't want me to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it because I need to say it. God, I know I should not be in this relationship because I know it dishonors you. God, I shouldn't put on that outfit. God, I shouldn't watch that movie. God, I shouldn't listen to that song. But I'm going to do these anyhow, God. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. That's saying, I don't want the fountain to satisfy me. I want those things to satisfy. Jeremiah is calling out to God's people. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images. And when we know God, we know His requirements, we know His expectations, we know His love even, we even know what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. Yet when we reject Him, it's, it's foolishness. And as Jeremiah says here, it's rebellion. And God has already likened His marriage with Israel, His relationship with Israel as a marriage. And when we forsake the fountain of living water, when we rebel against God, God, God calls it spiritual adultery. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. This image that God paints for us. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve you. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore, God says. You bowed down to other gods. You became an idolater. And when you bowed down to these other gods, you became as a whore, he tells Israel. You've forsaken my covenant and how we erect idols in our lives. And when we bow down to them, God says, you, you've, you've breached our covenant. He uses the same language in chapter 3, verse 1. You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes, in verse 2, to the bare heights and see where, you have, where, you have not, uh, where have you not been ravished. By the waysides, you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. This is strong language. But God likens forsaking him to adultery. He calls out his people. He says, this is wrong. So the first evil in verse 12 of chapter 2 is they've forsaken the fountain of living water, but secondly, they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's like they said, you know, God, I don't want a fountain. I'm, I'm going to choose a cistern. I'm going to choose to drink from the stagnant waters, God. I'm going to choose what's less than best. And God says, your cistern's broken. It's broken. You want to drink from this, God says? There's nothing in there but sludge. There's nothing in there but sludge. And that's what happens when we hew out for our own, ourselves cisterns. And, and just see the, the pride here. They hewed it out for themselves. 
Like, God, you're not enough. I'm going to create my own avenue to satisfy my own thirsts. It's an awful picture. And yet God, again, is confronting our own hearts. What do we, what do we turn to? What do you turn to? When we're in our worst times, do, do we turn to other things other than, than the Lord? Are other things the focus of our affections and our attentions? And almost anything could be a broken cistern in our lives that we turn to. It could be your children. Do you set all of your affections upon your children? Does your world revolve around them or around the Lord? It could be your spouse or maybe a desire for a spouse. It could be your, your careers. It could be anything. It could be Facebook, school, sports, food, sleep, preaching, teaching. It could be any of this. When we turn to it for satisfaction and not to the Lord. C.S. Lewis calls them mud pies. You might be familiar with the famous quote that Lewis says. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And these are the broken cisterns that Jeremiah is calling out God's people. You've turned to anything but the Lord. You've settled for mud pies. You've settled for the sludge of a cistern over the fountain of living water. And let us consider, how do we know if we've turned to cisterns? How, how do you and I know if we said, you know, God, I, I'm, I'm searching my satisfaction elsewhere? Well, I'm going to ask you five questions and write these down. Let God search your heart with these five questions because he's searching my heart with it. Five questions to know if we're turning to the Lord for satisfaction or turning to something else. The first question is, what's your prayer life like? What's your prayer life like? See, broken cisterns tell us that we could depend on those things when things are tough. We could depend on those things from moment to moment. Yet when we pray, we're saying, God, I'm depending upon you from moment to moment. So the question is, what is your prayer life like? I know I'm convicted of that. I know my own self-sufficiency. I know the cisterns in my life, and I'm saying, God, I want to pray, because I know when I pray, it shows that I'm dependent upon you, and there's no better place than that place, God. So the first question is, what's my prayer life like? The second question is, is worship for me a Sunday thing or a lifestyle thing? See, broken cisterns, make us compartmentalize our lives. When, when work becomes our pursuit, we start thinking, this is my work time. My God time was Sunday. My devotion time was this morning. My prayer time is at lunch. My other prayer time is before bed. But this is, this is my work time. Or that's my sports time. This is my TV time. And we begin to compartmentalize things. You know, when we see our lives as lives of worship, we say, God, everything I do from the time I wake to the time I go to bed is worship. My job, my career is worship. 
and I want to honor you by being the best employee I can be, but you are the drive behind that, God. This is a life of worship. And yet, when the career has become the cistern, we compartmentalize and say our faith is not for the workplace. So the second question is, is worship a Sunday thing or a lifestyle thing? A third question is, does my money reflect one who truly fears God? The reason I point at money is because materialism is the great, one of the greatest cisterns of our day. And they tell us that this is a place where our money should be at. But take one stroll down your bank account. Do it. Look at your last statement. Say, God, how have I used my money? Does it reflect one who's put all of your, your, your hope in your wealth? Or does it reflect one who is sacrificial and how you use it to, to advance God's kingdom and to please the Lord? A fourth question is, do I see this life as a vapor? And closely attached with it, am I mindful of the realities of heaven and hell? Do I see my life as a vapor? Because broken cisterns tell us to live for today that's what they tell us, that this life is what matters. There's nothing beyond. Broken cisterns make us waste our lives. We waste our time. And we cease to see our days as a vapor. Going out in the cold, on a cold day, breathe out there. How long would that last, that breath out of your mouth? And that's how our lives are, says James. And there's a reality of eternity. There is a heaven. There is a hell. Do we, do we see our days now in that reality? So the fifth and final question I want you to ask yourself is, am I in awe of God? See, broken cisterns take our gaze off of the Lord. And this is what happened with Israel. They took their eyes off of God. Are you in awe of the reality that God is holy he is holy. There is no darkness in him. He is perfect. Does that awe you? Are you in awe then of his justice and how in his holiness he cannot let sin go unpunished? Does that bring you to awe? Does it bring you to awe that God would punish sin? Does it cause you to awe that God would extend his love by sending Jesus? Is it, is it an awesome thing to think about how God's justice and his mercy kiss at the cross? Does that bring you to awe? God is beautiful. Because broken sisters, they, they take our attention off of those realities, off of God's beauty and his holiness. What brings us to this place? What brings someone who loves the Lord to a place where down the road, although they had once had devotion, down the road that they've forsaken the fountain of living water and hewed out cisterns. What brings us to this place? And there's one simple answer to it, and it's found in verse 19. And it's a powerful answer. God, t God tells Israel, your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. That's a strong word. Apostasy is to abandon your faith. He goes on, Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And then this, 
The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. When we no longer fear God is when we begin to forsake Him. When we no longer fear God is when we begin to turn to broken cisterns. And I know for many of us say, I fear the Lord. But as we look over those five questions I asked, are we saying, God, I I am turning to cisterns, God. God, I've turned to other things. God, have I really feared you? Well, how do these things relate? How does the fear of the Lord relate to our devotion to Him? When I think of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, if you remember that passage, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and a train of his robe filled the temple. And there were seraphim, and they had six wings. With two, they covered their eyes. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they began to shout out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the place was shaken, says Isaiah. And then he makes this statement. He says, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm in ruins. For my eyes have seen the Lord. And I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among people of unclean lips. See, when Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, it brought out the fear of the Lord. And he recognized that he was nothing. But just a few verses later, God says, Who who will go for me? Isaiah says, I'll go for you, God. That's the fear of the Lord that draws us to Him and doesn't push us away. I remember hearing on a talk show once, someone said, the beginning, to conquer fear is the beginning of wisdom. And I wanted to throw a brick at the TV. Proverbs 1.9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. See, when we cease to fear the Lord, we live in folly. And when we live in folly, we think, God's not going to hold me accountable. It's okay where I'm at. I loved God in the past. And that's foolishness. That's not fear. Do we stand and tremble at the thought of God's holiness that we would be crushed were it not for His mercy? This is the fear of the Lord that God calls His people to. And the fear of the Lord is not one that pushes us away from God, but it draws us to Him because we find that as we fear Him, He is a refuge for us. And as one pastor says, to fear the Lord more more or less is the fear of turning from the Lord then. Because I know how awful of a place it is to be away from the Lord. So I fear God because I take refuge in Him. God says, my people, in verse 19, the fear of me is not in you. And then that last phrase, how does God self-identify here? Look, Look at verse 19. What does he call himself? Declares the Lord God of hosts. The word God in your Bibles is in all caps. Because in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. The word Lord before that is Adonai. The word host is said by, oh, this is the Lord God of hosts. This is one of the greatest and grandest names of God. To say that he is Adonai is to say he is our master. To say he is Yahweh to say, is to say that he is the covenant God who redeemed them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To say he's the Lord of hosts, Lord Sebaoth, is to say he is the God of the armies of heaven. Lord God of hosts says, you don't fear me. 
And what an awful place it is if we come to a place where we just don't fear God. Well, there are two realities we need to stay far from as we're confronted in this black light of God's holiness. Some people will choose to try to make themselves clean. They'll wash their own hands like Pilate. Say, no, I took care of my sin, God. I I made it right. But God tells them in verse 22, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. You can't self-cleanse yourself. You can't do it. You need me. So before we start trying to be a better person, try to do good things, stop trying to say, God, I need you to cleanse me. He's a merciful God. But others deceive themselves and say, I never did anything wrong. I, I, I'm cool. My heart, my heart is right. I don't feel convicted right now. And that's what Israel tried to pull over on God in verse 34b into 35. He says, yet in spite of all these things, in spite of all the rebellion that God has pointed out, verse 35, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. And God speaks, behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. We've got to come to grips with the realities of God's holiness, our sin, but also this mercy. And this is where God's message in Jeremiah comes to a head in chapter 3, verse 12. See, when we, when we see our sin, a, res, a proper response is not to try to clean it up on our own. It's not to deny it as if it weren't there, but it's to do what Jeremiah tells the people in verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion where you can worship me. This is the call to repentance. As we looked at in the beginning of the message, this is a message for you and I. This is a message for the person in the mirror when you're standing in front of it. And we know our daily dependence upon God. And yet we need to see the realities of how we rebel against God. But then also see God's mercy. God says, I won't be angry forever. Just come, return to me, O faithless Israel. You know, the church in America, it it, it does many wonderful things. And I'm not going to be one who bashes it. But there's a reality that we look more like the world every day sometimes. Chip Ingram asks, if we put a recorder in your television, in your, in your living room, and recorded what you watched on TV from 6 p.m. to 12 p.m., and did it in the home of every Christian and every non-Christian, will we see a difference when we played it back? Somebody said, well, should we see a difference? So much in our media and our intent, entertainment dishonors God. Just, just, it does. They, they glorify the very things that Jesus died for for sexual immorality, for loose living, for self-sufficiency, 
for propping ourselves up, the pride of life, all of it, it just it, it oozes through our TV so often. Not everything, but most things do. And yet, so many times we, we, we look like the world, yet we expect different results. And yet many of us, we can, we can relate to the hurts because of our sin, our compromise. And God wants more for us. And this is where the cross of Jesus just shows up. If you remember in John 7, Jesus makes this beautiful statement. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. My brother and sister, if you find yourself turning to cisterns today, broken cisterns, drink of Jesus. Drink of the fountain of living water. Drink of what Jesus has offered us by taking our sin upon himself as he died on the cross. And again, I've quoted it many times, but I can't get away from 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And God's righteousness is offered to you if you would repent and turn to Christ. For those of us who know the Lord already, His righteousness is yours. It already is. Walk in it. Walk in it. I want to read one last passage in front of the book of Revelation. I want you to close your eyes as I read this. Would you bow your hearts, bow your heads as well? Let's remain in our seats, though. One of the last verses of the Bible. This is what John writes. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That is the water that God offers us this day. The fountain of living water. Oh Lord God, we praise you for loving us. And God, I know sometimes it's extremely difficult to be in that black-lit room. I confess that, God. Sometimes it's just so hard to see my sin, for us to see our sin, because we realize it's ugly, God. And most, most often, we, we'd rather just pretend like it's not there, ignore it. But God, I pray even now, God, that you would call us that you, would, that you would impress upon hearts today to return to the fountain of living water. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to ask our band to come forward as we sing our closing song.